My name is Bayan Rice. I'm a third generation wine grower, and I've been making wine for over two decades here in Santa Barbara wine country. It's more than a job, it's a calling. Join me as I talk to my fellow winemakers in a series that is a candid conversation between winemakers discussing their wines, their craft, and their lives over two glasses of wine. Hi, I'm Bayan Rice, and thank you for joining us for Two Glasses In. I'm here with the legendary Frank Ostini of Hitching Post. He's both a chef and a winemaker. Frank, I'm honored to have you here today oh, on the show. Great to be here, Bayan. Yeah, so yeah. I have so much to talk to you about that we have to fit it all in 45 minutes. We could probably go on for hours. I thought I'd just start out by saying we're so blessed to live in Santa Barbara and in wine country. Santa Barbara is known as the American Riviera. We have this beautiful Spanish heritage. The architecture is beautiful, pressed up against the mountains. We have this beautiful coastline and beaches and surf and volleyball and sailing and the most amazing islands off the coast. We pinch ourselves every day, right? When we go to work here in wine country, you know, I, I think about your, uh, your beginnings and I think about what you've experienced in the last 30, 40 years. I've only been here for about 25, so I can imagine what you've seen in the, in the buildup and evolution of our region. Yeah. You got into this through the restaurant business with the beginnings of, of Hitching Post. Yeah, the, the Hitching Post, the original Hitching Post in Casmelia, California, 12 miles outside of Santa Maria, was bought by my, my parents in 1952. That was the year I was born. So I grew up in the food business. So we are steeped in the culture of Santa Maria-style barbecue, cooking over an oak wood fire that has been done here for hundreds of years, even before the Spanish came to California the Native American Chumash were cooking over the wood, and it's the wow. coast live oak that grows on the hills here. When you come up the coast from Los Angeles, just two hours to the south, it's very urban until you get to Santa Barbara, and once you get over the mountains into the San Inez Valley, it is cattle country, vineyard land, agriculture. And Horses. Horses, ostriches, I mean, um, <laughs> it is, it, it's another world, and I'm so blessed to have been born here and when Santa Maria was only 10,000 people when I was born and of course it's way over 100,000 now so it's grown dramatically but agriculture is still prominent here and when I grew up there was no grapes here. My family had a restaurant, I went off to college and came back and um, became the bar manager for my mother was retiring, my brother was running the restaurant for my father and he asked me to come back and I, I just thought it was going to be a short stint and go back to grad school studying environmental planning. Mm. Turned out I became the wine buyer, decided I'd learn about wine, fell in love with the whole idea of the backcountry, Napa, Sonoma, Mendocino, when Napa was in the late 70s was the backcountry. And of in, course, I have to ask, you were the wine buyer back then, what wines were you buying for the restaurant? On my first buying trip, I bought Chateau Montalino oh, really? for $6 a bottle, Alexander Valley Cabernet. It retailed for 9 I bought Spring Mountain Cabernet, Villa Mount Eden when it was a very small house. Uh, I fell in love with Kenwood uh, in winery in Sonoma. Sonoma. Mm -hmm. It turned out there weren't very many good wineries back then. I would imagine. And, uh, probably people probably asked for Blue Nun or Almondin. We then, sold right? um, masseuse and lancers, yeah. and we had Palmasan varietals on our selection. I decided to upgrade the whole thing. We had a lot of commercial business people that were coming into Vandenberg to do missile launches and work for the military. They want a good wine with this good food that we had. And we had this uh, great reputation always for steaks cooked over this wood fire. We've expanded the menu to all kinds of things, but I wanted to make wine just to bring it into the family restaurant. And we made wine at home. I, I called all my friends and everyone said, you want to make homemade wine? And they thought of rot gut, uh, <laughs> the old Italian yeah. style where you get the grapes, you don't know how much sugar is in the grapes, so you throw a bunch of sugar in to get the it's alcohol really estimated. high. Yeah. It, it gets high alcohol, the yeast die, there's a lot of sugar left over, and you know, got you what, it got them what they wanted. But I said, no, this is dry table wine, it goes with food. 
there's this whole world out there that no, none of us knew about. Europe All was the, generations ahead of us. And yeah, and, and us you know, growing up, and we were used to Gallo and Spinata and all the And the wine coolers, red. remember the wine, wine cooler coolers. phase? Yeah, and then it was right at the time where there was a great wine made here in Santa Barbara. And the Sanford and Bennett Vineyard mm. made a great wine in 1976. By 1978, when it was released, it turned heads. It turned, there was people that said, you couldn't grow Pinot Noir in a Burgundian style anywhere in the world. I mean, it just, mm. there was just a few mm -hmm. decent examples of Pinot Noir in California and hardly any anywhere else. We had a great one here. And so there was a group of us that thought maybe we could make Pinot Noir here. I luckily found the Sierra Madre Vineyard through winemaker Tony Austin that was at Firestone right. Vineyard in the mm -hmm. early days that, that started that winery. And he was a nut for Pinot Noir and Firestone was located in the most one of the most hottest the spots hot in, spot, in yeah. our region. Right. They were doing Bordeaux varieties there too, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. and, they, and those grow really well there. Mm -hmm. Syrah wasn't planted back right. in those days. Nobody knew what and it was. And I sort of figure if, if Syrah was around, I probably would have gravitated to mm -hmm. Syrah thinking a steakhouse, because everyone thought I was nuts to make Pinot Noir in a, for a steakhouse. So Tony kind of moved the needle for you over to Pinot Noir. I mean, you realized what well, it was. Well, a lot of us, Jim Clendenin, Adam Tolmack, I was friends with all these guys, and uh, they were all leaning towards where can we find good Pinot Noir, mm -hmm. because they were Burgundy nuts, and they were showing me good wines from Burgundy. It was so unique, being a, a chance to make great Pinot Noir was so unique at that time that it was it was a challenge and we found a good vineyard in Santa Maria uh, the Sierra Madre vineyard mm -hmm. kind of farmed Legendary. itself yeah. none of it yeah. nobody knew how to farm back mm -hmm. then really but this was weak soils so it wouldn't produce much crop the leaves would drop naturally just by them dying to to open up the fruit canopy which was something that nobody knew then it did it naturally and it made great, great wine back then. Let and me ask you this. So, yeah. so you kind of stumbled into the wine industry just by chance and, and through your family's business. And you discovered your passion early. I was under the assumption that you're really more passionate about food first. And then wine came along as a secondary thing. But now it's starting to sound to me like wine's always really been there for you. Well, I don't know. It seemed too simple to me. Just really good food. And until I put wine on the table and started doing food and wine together, did it open my eyes up to the fact that what we had was very special that my family had in the food business and that the wine could really accent that. And that it was, you know, traveling a little bit in France and a little bit in Italy, seeing what they do in, in small cafes, they make the wine and bring it out in the carafe. It's, it's all a part of daily life, and I wanted to do that in my family's restaurant. So falling in love with wine made me fall in love with the food. I mean, it was always there. It wasn't going to be my passion mm -hmm. then. So, you know, they've always said fine food begets fine wine, and it sounds to me like your, your food is inspired by your wine, and it sounds like it might be the other way as well. When you started making wine, did you start thinking about, I'm crafting this wine to go with my food, or was it just to make a great wine? We were em emulating the Burgundian style using techniques that actually Jim Clendenin had gone to Burgundy and studied how they did it and came back with ideas. So we had an idea to try to make the Burgundian style. It turns out that that is lees infused, not simple fruity wine, but it's earthy and spicy with, by aging it in barrel in, in, with its lees. And that turns out to be a more complex style of wine that works with the food I have. Mm. I don't think it was my idea to make it for the food, I was just trying to make wine. Mm -hmm. And of course now everyone says, well, you make the wine to go with the food, right? And, well, I guess so. Uh, it's evolved to be, see as a chef, we work with uh, intense ingredients, especially the wood of the fire that we cook with. The smoke can be a, an extremely intense flavor. It can easily overpower the food, mm -hmm. depending on how you burn the fire. And we burn it clean. And, and so it has a, a, a distinct flavor, but it's, it's elegant and combined with the seasonings 
uh, doesn't overpower the protein or the vegetable that you're cooking. I'm, I'm forgetting you're talking about food right now. It almost it's sounds like you're talking same, about barrels. Well, we <laughs> take wine. the same thing into the winemaking. Yeah. So I make wine with the sensibilities of a chef, which I assume makes makes my story just a little bit different. So I'm combining ingredients. I love combining vineyards together to make complete flavor. I'm, I'm always trying to make a more complex wine that has multifaceted flavors. I think I can do that by putting vineyards together. So I've never been the single vineyard proponent, but I, uh, I have vineyards where I work with multiple clones within the same vineyard so I can do the blending that way. I love putting flavors together and making a complete taste, which it comes from my chefing background. I love that. So why is Santa Barbara so distinctive and different, would you say, compared to other regions? And you've played with a lot of vineyards, I'm sure, over your years here in the county. Well, we have tremendous diversity of climate. So there are so many possibilities and so much potential that we haven't even come close to recognizing. We are so early in the whole process of learning how to make wine here. 40 years, that's like nothing uh, in the world of wine. Um, mm -hmm. So basically the region is more southerly in our hemisphere than most fine winemaking regions could be. They're mostly located higher up, but we have this cool climate based upon the ocean influence that we have by that unique geography that the mountains were turned sideways and the, and the breezes can come in. For the Pinot Noir, we search for the vineyards that have the most coastal access and openness to these afternoon breezes. So we have this long growing season that usually starts early and can end really late because we don't usually get fall rain. And luckily this past year, we got a lot of rain, Thank but God. it didn't happen yeah. in the fall. And this long hang time that you're talking about or long seasons is really good for grape growing and specifically wine grapes. Why do you think that is? Mostly I work with the Pinot Noir, which gets harvested first usually but it, it also starts first. It benefits from these mild temperatures. It, and it doesn't do so well when it gets really hot, but we also have the cool nights that mm -hmm. preserve acidity. And for me, there has to be, I don't wanna say strong acidity, but a backbone to, the, to go with food, to cut through the fat, of some of the yeah, items because we're a lot of people don't know that it's it's like a graph right with sugars and acids the closer you get to pick the acids are reduced but the sugars are increased right so you get flabby wines if you pick too late you get wines with low acid if you wait too long so yeah, it's like getting, course, the, getting the crosshairs to get it But just everybody right. has a different idea of what balance. I mean, now we're talking about balance. Of course as the sugar goes up the acidity comes down and what I say is balance is not necessarily the next guys. Right. And, our, and that's another thing about us in Santa Barbara. You can make so many different styles from the same vineyard based upon when you pick the grapes. I'm a proponent that the most important decision a winemaker can make is when the grapes are picked. And we have a particular idea that most of our wines in California have maybe a little bit too much alcohol because we have sunshine. And especially here in Santa Barbara, you can make them very, very ripe and the acidity stays pretty good. You can keep, maintain a pretty healthy balance mm -hmm. uh, even at the higher sugar, higher alcohols. And I've, just, I've got a lot of friends in the business who all, like you said, have different opinions on when to pick and certain pH and TA and, and sugar levels. And most of them gravitate towards that instinctive motivation to pick as opposed to going off just chemistry. A lot of them, you know, say, well, I go off of just tasting the berry and knowing from prior years if it's going to be the right day. Do you feel the same way? Or? Well, I have a whole nother ritual that I believe in that involves picking cluster samples, crushing the grapes and letting them sit overnight mm. to because I'm convinced that even what I would call ripe fruit tastes green, tasting the juice, just the juice, you know, all the flavors in the skin. Right, right. And uh, it, doesn't, for it doesn't hours. come out of immediately yeah. unless it's overripe. The, the flavors dissolve quickly into the juice. That makes a lot of and, sense. Um, and so I'm wanting to pick 
you know, at a lower alcohol level, but I also want the flavor to be right. I do not want green, harsh character mm -hmm. in this overnight soak, but when it extracts color and it has a fruity character in the red, you know, how it goes from green herbaceousness to the red fruits, to the dark fruits, to the raisins and plums mm -hmm. and super overripe things. Right. That's how all grapes work. I like to pick at the lowest sugar possible by getting good flavor. So I'm not necessarily shooting for the biggest body. I want wine to go with food. I don't want it to have to win a tasting with other wines. I want it to taste good with food. And it sounds to me like winemaking is really a community thing for you as well. Obviously, you've been inspired by some of the greatest winemakers on the planet. You know, Jim Clendenin, I consider to be one of the top in the world. And he was your right-hand man as you kind of went through the beginning stages of learning. And Absolutely. You, you kind of obviously had an opportunity to wean off of him, his experiences in Europe and learn about Burgundian varieties in winemaking. And so I like to say Jim is actually a little bit younger than me, but in wine years, he's an ancient person because <laughs> yeah. he's so experienced and so steeped in, in the history of winemaking and what's going on all over the world. He's been a resource always. And we made wine, our first commercial efforts from 91 to 2000 were done at the Albon Climat Winery. And then we got too big to stay at that winery, so we moved to Central Coast Wine Services for six or eight years. Then we went to Terrebonne Wine Company for 11 vintages. And we are th just this vintage going back to Aubon Climat. And we wow. left as a 2000 case brand. We've grown to 20,000 cases. Amazing. And we're moving back to that winery, this vintage. Congratulations, you've, yeah. come, you've come full circle. I full bet it's circle. gonna be so much fun playing basketball again. In, oh in boy, the... <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm not so sure <laughs> we can uh, play as hard or drink as yeah. much as we used to. I heard you guys had a lot of fun in those days. You had a, I guess Jim had a basketball hoop up in the, in the, in the uh, cellar, so, and then also he had a full kitchen there, right? So you guys would cook together We would well. cook all the time. So we would do, he would do the open houses twice a year in association with the Vintners Festival, and we'd all be involved. In, We'd, you know, there'd be 50 or 80 or 100 wines for people to taste, and there'd be hundreds of people show up. And then after that, we, we'd have a party afterwards. I can't believe we used to do, we used to do that, because we can't do that anymore. Good, We're too oh, old. please. <laughs> <laughs> we can enjoy a glass or two or three. But, well, you've uh, come full circle, and now you'll be rejoined, and I'm sure you'll be able to replay some of those good old days. Two Glasses In has been brought to you by Visit Santa Barbara. There are seaside escapes, then there's a gentle crescent of California coast connecting breathtaking beaches, soaring mountains, verdant vineyards, elevated enclaves, and eclectic communities. More than beautiful, it's Santa Barbara brilliant. Visit SantaBarbaraCA.com to plan your stay. Can't so wait. tell me how you, you currently have a partner in, in, in Hitching Post Wines, Gray Hartley. Tell me how you guys met and how you decided to join ventures. It's, it's one thing to be an entrepreneur and make wine. It's another to actually have someone to share decision making with, and especially the heat of harvest. You know, how do you guys collaborate and, you know, how so does it somehow work? So we have work? this amazing partnership in that we are totally diametrically opposites in so many things. Let's go back to when I was, I was just starting trying to find friends that would help me make wine. Everyone said, not interested, except this guy, Gray Hartley, that I barely met. I called Gray and he said, yeah, I'll come out there. I'll bring my girlfriend, I'll bring my dad. We'll pick the grapes. So he had no wine experience either. Absolutely just... none. He was just, Gray was the dreamer. You know, he's a, he's a fisherman. He tells story, fishermen stories all the time. He can, he can yarn, spin a yarn, that fella. And he <laughs> falls right into the marketing side of, of selling wine for us. But he came uh, on the first year, we made Merlot from Firestone. Second year, I drove up to Napa and got Cabernet. And the third year, 81, we found this Pinot Noir. And we, we both fell in love with it. We've been partners ever since. So let me ask you, when you were thinking about starting a winery, you probably didn't know how difficult it was to start a winery, but you had the restaurant. So you knew if I made wine and just enough to satisfy my wine list, I'd be okay, right? That was the it, and I kind of recommend that for anybody. You, know, <laughs> have they, you haven't sold place before, before you, you sell it. <laughs> it's like virtually impossible yeah. to do because it, it just is. I just wanted to sell it in the restaurant, and 
I didn't want to sell wine in the marketplace. Well, he wanted to get out of fishing. He'd done it for mm -hmm. 28 years. Alaskan fishing is the heart, one of the most dangerous occupations in America. And he was ready to find a land-based business. <laughs> and so he always had dreamt from the first day, he dreamt of having a winery. You know, he was a dreamer and I'm, I'm the practical one. Mm -hmm. He still is. He's the dreamer, I'm the practical one. So in the heat of harvest, how is it with you guys? It sounds like you are really good collaborators. I mean, you've made it this far. So we, we each take vineyards. He takes the ones up in Santa Maria in Southern San Luis County mm -hmm. to sample them. And we meet together to, we crush the fruit and check the condition of the fruit, talk about what the vines look like, let them sit overnight, taste the samples. And just as when we're doing blending later on uh, in the winemaking process, when we're going to decide how our blends can be, we have different opinions right. about wine. I am a winemaker that likes to make structured, long ageability wines. And oftentimes I will say, wow, this is really good when it's not really that good right now. Mm -hmm. But I, yeah. I extrapolate Gray's different. Gray's a hedonist. He wants it to taste good now. He's the digital camera. So he, he wants instant gratification. Yeah. So he reacts that way. And as the winemaker, maybe in the winemaker, Gray would be the cellar master, the way we divide up things, because mm -hmm. he's mechanical. He can keep the machines running, get it done. Mm. And so that's a great collaboration. But I have to depend on him for the drinkability aspect of our wines. And you know, most of our wines are drank when they're very young. Cannot make wines that require a long time before you open them. You never sell a bottle. Well, either. you could sell them in the restaurant, but once you take your wines to stores and restaurants outside of your bubble, it becomes much more difficult because you need to know the audience. You need to know what your buyers want. And Gray's right, it's all about what they want, not about what you want as a winemaker. Absolutely. For, for that particular you yeah. know, channel of sales. And yeah. I've found myself in the past saying, oh, I'm gonna make this really crazy Cabernet Franc at 12% alcohol and I'm gonna take it out. And, and you get crickets. <laughs> you get crickets. Yeah. And, and then you go out with a, a Pinot that's got a slight sweetness to it and it's a crowd pleaser, we call it, right? And it yeah. just sells like crazy. So you're always in the middle of deciding between do I make it for an audience or do I make it for myself? Yeah. And the wines you make for yourself, you can be proud about. You put them in your tasting room, you put them on your restaurant wine list, right? Those are, that's always the challenge in what we do. Yeah. So well, you have to balance everything. I mean, I'm, I'm smart enough to know that we, we have to satisfy our customers and we, we have to understand what our customers like and what they like about what right. we do. And I've always been one to compromise and come to con some consensus with, with my partner. While I'm, I'm the winemaker, can decide to do it any way I want, I have respect for our partnership and his opinion, yeah. and we do it together. So, God, so on the business lot. side, it sounds like he's also involved in the marketing and sales, and, and he feeds back information to you to, on the production line in terms of you know, the long term. You know, people don't realize it takes a year to grow the grapes, a year to two years to make it into wine. And then if you're really smart, you might give it another six months in bottle before you release it. So some wines might take three years before they get to market. And it's if you're really of, smart, they'll really sell really quickly. Right? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> but it could take longer. And then projecting all that stuff out, sales over a number of years, we have to make a decision now about how much we make that is predicting what's gonna sell three or four years down the road. I it's heard hard. the best analogy was that the wine industry is a freight train laying tracks three, four, five years ahead, and the consumer is a jackrabbit, right? <laughs> yeah. And we're chasing after it. And it's so true, and a perfect example of that is a movie came out in 2004 called Sideways. And Can that just imagine? changed your entire world. I mean, you have to tell me what happened. Well, I'm a total skeptic for anything given. You know, no one's going to come and give me anything. And, and these Hollywood people, they, they had a story that, well, it goes back to even before the Hollywood people were here, Rex Pickett, the man who wrote the novel, was hanging out at the bar and, and doing angst, over-drinking quite a bit. He was being mild. He was doing the miles thing. He was writing the book, but he didn't have the wine part of the book in there until he came into my restaurant and found out that there was wine in the region. He was coming up and golfing, not realizing in those days you wouldn't even know there was a, a wine region in 1998. You couldn't see the grapes 
from the 101, basically. And, you know, we're spread out here, so it's not like concentrated like Napa Sonoma. Right, right. He found out we were doing wine, and uh, he met Chris Whitcraft, and he befriended the bartender, and then he had a crush on a waitress. He wrote us in. So it's really and, a real-life story, an experience that he had while he was here, which is yeah, why some of it, yeah. the restaurant I mean, made there it was, into the movie. There right? was, exactly. We were written in from the go. Of course, Alexander Payne, who bought the screen rights, could have done anything he wanted with it and, and filmed it anywhere. So he came and lived for six months, unbeknownst to any of us, and decided what he wanted in there and approached us. I was skeptical because, you know, they're kind of alcoholics. I mean, not kind of. These guys are abusing our, our sacred right. product. Right. At that point, I rode the real high horse that this is all about food with a meal and we don't abuse it. And it turns out there's a lot of people that abuse alcohol, but we have a place for, it was important to me that it, that, that it be respected and I didn't want it to be trashed. So yeah. tell me about this sideways effect. I, I experienced it in my winery for about five, six years afterwards and the number of tourists that came to Santa Barbara wine country was incredible. Yeah. Um, Tell me how it impacted you. Well, immediately for us is the restaurant, which was prominent in, in the movie, and our Hitching Post wine brand, prominent in the movie. Slow growth from the beginning of the movie in October till um, the next summer when it got, went through the springtime of Oscars and became famous then. Increase in business over a six-month period of time of 40%. Wow. And so we had to gear up for... Uh, tremendous business. We had a pretty good business. Opened in Buellton in 1986. It slowly grew over the years and was doing good, but then we were inundated and that presented a lot of problems, but it was glorious to be, when we saw the movie at the um, Arlington The premiere, I, I think we went to the premiere in LA, remember that? I, we, I went to one in LA. Yeah. We also saw it at the Arlington Theater in Santa Barbara before Actors, it was yeah. released. And mo most of the, it was Harvest. It was like September 18th we they were, were showing it. We were all super busy, but we couldn't miss it because yeah. we knew it was gonna just change everything. Well, we didn't know anything, but when I walked out of that movie, our jaws kind of dropped. If anybody sees this, they will come. So that like brought the movie alive to the to people and then brought our wine to people that you couldn't believe. And it helped elevate the entire Santa Barbara brand as well, not just your brand. I think the entire region benefited from it. So you probably remember I used to sell Merlot to the Hitching Post back in the days, you know? Yes. And when that movie came out, um, so you can imagine when that one-liner came out in the movie, how that affected our business. I know that you had been making Merlot back then and had that by the glass at the restaurant, I believe, as well. So tell me how one movie impacted Merlot for not just the industry, but for your restaurant. Well, for me, we had been making Merlot since 1998 and blending it with Cabernet Franc and some other grapes to make this wine called Generation Red. Now it's called Gen Red. Gray Hartley kept saying, we need to bottle a Merlot. This is pre-sideways. I would say the world doesn't need another Merlot because I didn't want to have to have something else to have to sell. And Merlot was the first wine we ever made from Firestone Vineyard, 1979, a Merlot. It was delicious. And we never made it again until 98. I, when I got involved with Pinot Noir, it was like I swore off I was never going to make another grape. I don't know. I don't know why. I just was crazy about it. We fell in love with Pinot Noir. But in 98, half our barrels were empty because of a small crop. And so we thought, well, wait a minute. And the, other, the other part of it was we, we had uh, our first Pinot Noir was $8 wow. a bottle in the restaurant, $2 a glass. We didn't get a lot of respect, even in That's 1985. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but it was our house uh, poor, and we were exposing people to a new thing and, and introducing at that point, people were white wine drinkers and they weren't red wine drinkers. It was pre the French paradox. That was a turning point for red wine. Where back before that, the Zinfandel was being torn out. They made white Zinfandel to save the Zinfandel right. vines. And we were transitioning people from white wine to red with a lighter style Pinot Noir. We were making people red wine drinkers. Well, as years gone, 
saw the price of Pinot Noir went really high and we couldn't make an affordable wine for the base house pour. So we started to make this Gen Red thing. We were making Westerly Vineyard, McGinley Vineyard now, Happy Canyon Merlot, blending it with Alisos Canyon, Alisos Vineyard fruit. But the Merlot was outstanding. And so we've, in 2004 vintage, we decided to bottle Merlot and start a Merlot program after the movie, <laughs> after the brave. movie. And, we, and we, we always said, we like swimming upstream. We did it with Pinot Noir forever. And now Pinot Noir is, we're going, going downstream with thing. it. With it. Yeah. We wanted a challenge, so we made Merlot. And we, at times we made 1,200 cases. I don't know, we got a little crazy about it. Now we, we just make very small amounts of Merlot. But boy, what is that? A joke in a movie? I don't understand right. how right. that could affect uh, a Merlot producer's uh, business. It's just the power of media is unbelievable. It's that was a joke. incredible what happened to our business. We had to take all the Merlot we had and start blending it into red wines, <laughs> red blends, and calling them something fanciful in order to move through it. It was about two thirds of our inventory. But in the last 10 years, Merlot's definitely had a comeback. It's yeah. nothing like it was in the 90s when the baby boomers discovered it, if you'll recall, after the French paradox came yes. out in 60 minutes. And Merlot was this fancy word, easy to say. It was a versatile wine, kind of like Pinot Noir, but kind of like Cabernet. It was kind of in the middle. It was soft and supple and easy drinking. You could kind of describe it as being cherry and berry and have a little kiss of French oak. It was very mainstream, and I, and I think that was why it was the training wheels of red wine for that generation. So there was Cabernet that was king, but the tannins of Cabernet made it hard for a lot of people to enjoy. Merlot was in the same family, but a softer, easier thing to enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is the side effect of sideways, right? There's a lot of great Merlot because in order to be a Merlot in this, in this climate, it has to be good. And that's what we finally felt the confidence to finally start releasing yes. Merlots again. And it's refreshing for all those old fans who used to love the Merlot because remember, they remember the good old days when we were known for it. Yes. And it's nice to have it back. I personally love it. I mean, if you've ever had a bottle of Chateau Petrus, it's usually 80 to 85% Merlot and, and a little bit of Cabernet Franc, which is the perfect blend, which you were doing. And, yes. and that's, it, they marry so well together, they complement each other. Yeah. Well, why don't we try the uh, Highliner, which I understand is famous. Um, <laughs> I've had it many times, I love it. So Frank, tell me about the beginnings of Highliner and the reason behind the name. It was back in 1998. There was a futures program at the Wine Cask and also one at the Duke of Bourbon, David Breitstein. Oh, yeah, and Doug Marjoram was. Doug Marjoram at the Wine Cask. And they were at, up at ABC, and we had a new vineyard to work with, Riverbench Vineyard in Santa Maria. And we were going to bottle it. We were excited about another bottling. And, and uh, we told these guys, you know, it's going to be the same price as our other vineyards, which was retail $25 at that time. And David Breitstein said, Frank, um, why don't you just make a fancier label and uh, we'll charge $40 for it. We left that meeting going, you know, labeling's not that big a deal for us. We, we hadn't changed our label forever. We didn't think the wine was any better than our other single vineyards, so we, we weren't gonna wanna charge 40. So what could we do to make a better wine? Well, Jim Clendenin had pointed the way by creating his Isabel bottling of, mm -hmm. of Pinot Noir, which is a combination of vineyards, his best barrels. There was that recipe to look at. And then we did a classic cuvee. This is un unbelievable. We did a classic cuvee with Chris Whitcraft. And Chris had Biennacito, and we had our Sanford and Bennett. And we oh, combined wow. those two, two together. Two legendary vineyards, wow. And it was it was the most popular classic cuvee. What are we going to call it now? Okay, now we got to come up with some kind of name for it. I, I said, Gray, is, do you have some name in the fishing thing that's like headliner? I mean, do you, what do you, don't you have some name that I've heard you say? And he goes, well, you know, there is that the best fisherman in the fleet's called the highliner. Hmm. I'm like, highliner, best fisherman in the fleet. Okay, well, this is the best wine of our fleet. Let's, let's use that name. 
you know, this is a legendary wine. I, as long as I can remember, you know, since the movie Sideways. Is so that was the wine. They, this was they, it. This was one of the main wines they drank in the movie Sideways. They, they showed the label several times. They drank it several times. They were in the restaurant um, multiple times. And one of the famous scenes is Miles comes into the bar and he's kind of dejected because the woman he's interested in is not really there that night. And, and he says, I'll have a highlighter. And the bartender says, glass or bottle <laughs> and he says bottle and then it, it it dissolves fades away and comes back to him at the end of the night leaving and he was of course sideways at that point where he was you know he couldn't walk a straight line we would never let somebody walk right. down that highway you know where we are right. there's no sidewalks on the highway there we're just outside of town just a touch we used to give rex pickett a ride home once in a while because he would close the bar and we, <laughs> we just give him a ride back to the hotel he stayed at the at the windmill it was called then he would stay there that's where they filmed the movie right? yeah and that's where uh, now it's the sideways in right right um, it was very close to reality the whole thing that's why I really wasn't in the movie because I didn't want to be a nobody in the background. My restaurant was there, my wine was in the movie. They were drinking the real McCoy on set. Everybody was learning about wine. We had wine tastings afterwards. It was just a tremendous party. And you know, we thought that thing would film and go away and never, but they ended up giving us millions of dollars of advertising. This, so this wine, we, we, we couldn't figure out how to sell more than 150 cases in a year. And immediately we were able to bottle 1,200 cases and wow. sell it out fairly quickly with the 2003. I remember Bill Geis from CBS Sunday Morning. Uh, it broadcast on Oscar morning for their Oscar show and, and he featured Sainas Valley. I remember pouring this wine and saying, here, taste this, we bottled it yesterday. <laughs> We don't usually sell them after the day after we bottle them, do we? <laughs> well, yeah, Kathy, we were talking about this earlier. Kathy Joseph, she holds on to her wines sometimes years. Yes. The bottle. Yes. Before releasing them. That's fascinating. Yes. And we do, we try to stay within normal release times, but we always save wine because we like our wine five and ten years later. Mm -hmm. Uh, Frank, I have to say you're one of the hardest working guys I know in the industry. And not only are you in the wine industry, but you're also a chef. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine how many years you've been working, you know, 8 to 12 hour days. And you just seem tireless. I don't know how you've managed to pull it off. What's your secret? I always want to tinker. I always want to try new things. You know, I had two full-time businesses, um, uh, you know, a restaurant that, that, that's very, very busy. And, uh, and a wine brand that's grown to be 20,000 cases. I'm the winemaker. I'm the guy that has to make sure that we don't make mistakes. Mistakes hurt. If you, if you don't make good wine, you're in trouble. But I had it pretty well organized that my life was slowing down just a bit, but uh, maybe I was bored, but we picked <laughs> up the property next to the restaurant and we're gonna have a tasting room there now. Started a year ago, we've been in it for a year, but we decided we wanted to serve lunch at that, at that location to help build the tasting room business, make sure there was traffic, draw people in the daytime. So now I have a lunch business and a tasting room business. Those are two totally different than the restaurant itself. We cook food in the restaurant, deliver it to the tasting room in a three-wheel electric cart or a tricycle, and it's going fantastic. But it's a whole nother sets of jobs. You're a true entrepreneur. I totally well, respect you, and, and I know what it means to get bored. Um, <laughs> we do this to ourselves. You know, we keep taking on more and more and more. The wine industry is a perfect example of being an entrepreneur because you're growing grapes, you're making wine, you're having to sell it through retail and wholesale channels. You're hopefully going to have a wine club where you're shipping wine all over the country. And, and, then, and then you have to have a life somewhere, but you decided to have a restaurant. I know. So, you know, my life is food and wine. I mean, it's, it just is. And I'm happy, happy for that. And, you know, I'm not a very good marketer. We all have great stories to tell and we don't tell them. This is wonderful to put these things together, get the stories. We need to connect with all of our customers with the story of who we are and how that's reflected in our wine. We're convinced that there's a piece of us in the wine. Mm -hmm. And people talk about the energy that goes in and that people can feel that energy elsewhere. But 
I mean, this story is so helpful. I'm convinced we have to, we have to get everybody's story. And none of us are gonna be here in 50 years. I'm blessed with the chance to have been involved since almost the beginning of the wine business here and to see it happen. And there's, there's so many stories, there's so many love affairs breakups and i'm not talking about uh, between people i'm talking about between vineyards and wineries and it's so much a part of all of us so tell me about that so there's two kind of theories about winemaking there's the the folks that believe in terroir minimal intervention just capture the true essence of the vineyard in the bottle and nature makes it right we just do everything we can not to mess it up and then there's the stylists right the stylists have a particular house style they have a particular palette to their wines that's consistent year to year and it's done through a variety of ways usually like similar vineyards similar yeast similar barrel program and then of course blending and blending is where really the artistry comes in and that personalization of the wine that's unique to your palate as a winemaker where do you feel you are on the spectrum of those two I think the vineyards will have their own voice. We are still learning what that exactly is. Even within a vineyard like uh, Fiddlesticks with a hundred options, and I, I pose this question to Kathy because we've been making our best wine from her vineyard. Because we were buying a 10 ton batch, we would pick three or four clones on the same day and co-ferment them. And I asked her because now my tank sizes are different and we, I have to change some of it. But I asked her, if we were making three clones uh, and picked them on the same day and fermented them separately and blended them together afterwards, would that be the same as if we blended them and co-fermented them together? And she thinks it wouldn't be the same. She thinks it's better to co-ferment them. And that's what we've been doing. We often keep things separate to try to learn how it all fits, but it's different. My approach this year is we're gonna take sections of her vineyard that ripen together and pick three clones one day, and we're gonna do it three times, but it's going to be clonal blends. But mostly the vineyards will have their own voice, but mostly a winemaker can trump that by making it in their style. We try to let the fruit speak for itself. I mean, it's all aged in oak, but not a lot of new oak. And we're really judicious with that flavor and different vineyards can handle more depending on their intensity. I really try to make Pinot Noir from 10 different vineyards, picked over a, a two week or three week. It used to be a month period of time, but in recent vintages, it's been about two weeks from beginning to end of harvest. I'm making one wine in my brain because when you get to our flagship Pinot Noir Highliner, it's going to be a blend of vineyards. For me, there's two things I'm doing. I'm trying to make a complete wine from the beginning harvest to the end. So Frank, on the final stage, right before we bottle, we blend wines and it can be one of the most critical times in, in the wine's evolution. It's also the commitment you can't go back on, right? Once you blend it in tank, you can't go backwards. Yeah. Um, do you do that with Gray? Tell me how you guys kind of collaborate on that process. So basically, we taste everything separate, make quality judgments on it. For me, I get an idea of what has the structure, what has different fruit components, what has the finish. And then I make an intellectual blend where I make a guess at what the blend might be. And that is assembled and we taste that we compare it to the last vintage. Then we make adjustments and take more of something or less of something and move it around. It's a process that takes two or three months to complete. Once you rack into tank, it's that that's what you got. It seems to work out. So Frank, this, this rosé is phenomenal. I love rosé. A lot of people don't realize it's actually red grapes that are on the skins for just overnight sometimes, sometimes just in the press. Yes. And that's why it picks up a little bit of the color. Uh, what's your particular kind of way of, of making, do you have a, a distinctive way of making rosé different so from what uh, else? We, we often make it, uh, we do partial barrel fermentation. So we do about half in barrel, half of it in, in stainless steel tanks. We're using machine picked fruit from the French Camp Vineyard up in Shandon, 
which is a very you know out of out of up in San Luis County, one of the warmest spots. Uh, but this grape turns out to have very low pH. We like very crisp, very dry. So there's no residual sugar. This is totally totally dry with 20% of Pinot Noir that is to give a richness to it. So it's a light, you know, sort of strawberry character mm. with a little bit of richness, aged in barrel on its lees for, you know, five or six months and bottled in the spring. We want them crisp and light and refreshing. I guess it goes with food being so dry, but you can drink it. Yeah. I and prefer them dry. This is delicious. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Uh, no, it's the ultimate versatile food wine. It's also great as an aperitif. I mean, it's a great summer wine. And we're, we're proponents that you can drink it all uh, year round, before a meal or even... Uh, Thanksgiving, um, right? Yeah. Great with turkey Absol and cranberry. Absolutely. Yeah. We call it Pink's. We've been making it since uh, 2007, so even before rosé was real popular. And, uh, you know, we make 1,800 cases of this. Nice. So, so, so I have to ask, when do you have dinner? Is it after a shift or do you eat in the middle of well, your you, cycle? Yeah, I eat at regular times nowadays because I don't have to cook in the restaurant anymore. So mm -hmm. I can have a regular, I don't have to run the nighttime restaurant. As we get older, we eat earlier and yeah. go to bed earlier. I get up early, I get up at six usually. So I have to ask, you are a chef and you're a winemaker. What do you default to as your pairing? When you have your ultimate pairing or your favorite dish is it a steak and pinot noir <laughs> i guess so that's kind of a cop-out the best wines uh, i've ever had are french burgundies that are well aged and i've gotten the privilege to to drink a, a good amount of them through my friends that are francophytes and uh, they 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 buy and play in that all the time and i still think they're the best wines the best wines in the world it's less and less about what the winemakers do. There's only so much we could do. It's, it's all in the grapes. And I always say that the great winemakers know how to get good grapes. You know, when I started making wine in the you know, 80s, 50% of the grapes were sent out of the county. There's no, there was no winery space here more. I think it was 90% yeah. was shipped away. That sounds right. And to this day, 50% still shipped mm -hmm. away. There's a need to make wine here. There isn't a need to plant grapes uh, in the current economic situation. I mean, uh, you know, and how hard it is to, to make a winery. I never really wanted to have that investment. Uh, so I've always used other people's spaces. I didn't want another uh, living, breathing business that I had to more brick and mortar. To. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, and it, it, it's less expensive to be able to do it in other, to share facilities. And we've always been able to work with other people. And uh, every situation has its own set of issues and situations you have to work around. And I love the dynamics of figuring all that out and how to work with people and how to, how to make situations work. So I have to ask, <clears throat> sometimes the situations don't work and I've been through a lot of situations where we've made big mistakes and they cost us a lot of money and pain and suffering. You've got to have one of those stories. Well, there was a, there was a wine we made in 1997 uh, that had uh, a serious VA problem, acetic acid problem. Mm. I guess we didn't, uh, the wine didn't go all the way dry because mm. I guess. Stuck fermentation? I, I and because everything had always just, uh, I, I expected it to just go dry and this one didn't. And that, you know, that just made good cooking wine. Uh, <laughs> Is that what uh, you cooked with it the rest that, of the year? <laughs> that's what that we cooked with that wine. And then we had to learn about nutrients and then watch and check uh, grapes for the assumption was that the, it didn't have enough nutrients to finish a fermentation. It happens. Um, and it's kind uh, of embarrassing, isn't it? I've had that situation course. where we, we have to bring wine back from restaurants and, and one of them was a tartrate problem. The wine wasn't cold stable. And so we were, they were sending bottles of wine back saying there's these pieces of pencil lead in your wine. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, what, how could that have happened? 
<laughs> so there's a lot of learning experiences. Yeah. You know, and we're only, as you said, 30 years into this here in our industry. There's a lot of newcomers who've come to the industry who rely on people like you who've been around and have learned through trial and error. And so they kind of rely on, on us for you know sharing that knowledge and experience. That's what I love so much about the culture of Santa Barbara is it seems like we all are friendly to each other and, and want to help each other. Well, we're not in competition with each other. We're in competition with the world. And so whoever can ex excel and be recognized, I'm uh, locally, I'm for because that, that's great because that helps all of us. I, I, I also feel that way in the food business. We used to keep all of our secrets of exactly what we were doing in the restaurant. We wouldn't tell anybody. We wouldn't even teach it to anybody else. It was all in my family. But I've grown to realize that we're beyond that. There are so many details to everything we do. No one could recreate what we do. And in the same way in, in winemaking, it's a very simple process with a million details. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And they all matter. They all make a difference. There's no really right or wrong answer. There's a lot of ways to do it. There's the, all this diversity and appreciation. You know, you will have people that love your wine. You know, all of us at, all, at a tasting, they'll be come up, somebody will come up and they'll just say, you have the best wine here. Great, you like my wine. That's all you're saying. That's all it is. And that's all that matters, that we all have our our fans in this culture of Santa Maria barbecue, I don't want it to go away. I saw all the restaurants of Santa Maria that lost their original cooks, not passed down the information. Mm -hmm. Now we're teaching it to anybody. We go to the Alisal Guest Ranch and teach barbecue boot camp. We teach all the all that we know for two days. I just spill it out, you know. That it's sounds like, like so much fun. How do I sign up? For yeah, that? sign up. Man. <laughs> we do it twice a year. Well, I'll tell you what, yeah. this has been a delightful conversation. I'm honored that you've come to my home to talk about wine in Santa Barbara. Oh. Um, we're honored to have you on the show, and, and oh. I can't wait to see where you go. And there's still a bright future ahead. Isn't that amazing I think to so. think you've been doing this for so long? And Yeah, but you know, we barely touched the surface. Every new generation that comes in is going to challenge the challenge all of us, and we have so much to look forward to. I can't wait till harvest. Awesome. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Two Glasses In was created and produced by Rafael A. Ruiz and Brian Rice. This show has been produced in conjunction with Visit Santa Barbara. Co-produced by Jesse Lynn Perkins, Alex Blackmon, and John M. Shalafant. Sound by John M. Chalafant and music by Peter Seibert. Special thanks to Frank Ostini, The Hitching Post 2 Restaurant, and Hitching Post Wines. Two Glasses In is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and review. 2020 Rareworks LLC.